how's everybody doing today? Good. Halloween, I thought about doing, uh, I thought about doing a zombie sermon today. Uh, seeing, uh, just going through the greatest hits of uh, people who were dead then weren't dead. Um, you know, we could spend some time there. Uh, there's some pretty vivid uh, verses on uh, the earth being cracked open and the dead coming forth. Um, but we didn't do that. But uh, this is kind of a scary story. And I'm going to tell this story, and this is just a really, really (laughs) top to bottom. This is just a bad story. I'm going to warn you. Um, But I tell the bad story to encourage you. (laughs) So I think you're going to leave today encouraged. I hope you leave today a little encouraged. Um, But we're going to tell a story, and uh, it's going to start out with this guy. And uh, for the sake of our story today, this guy is uh, Moses. and Or no, this is Abraham. And... uh, not Moses, wrong, uh, wrong Old Testament uh, old guy, uh, Abraham, and we're going to, um, he's going he's gonna to be up here, and he was at his, hanging out at his tent one day, uh, up in the hills, and uh, he's hanging out there, and uh, two guys show up. Now, just so you know, uh, that I'm not uh, just completely wrong on how I tell the stories when we get to Scripture, it's going to be three guys, we've got two call the flannel graph people. Uh, <laughs> we got two guys. So two guys show up, and these are just any two regular guys. Um, these are angels who are messengers from God, and I got to tell you, and we'll talk about it when we see the scriptural account, um, it says that something happens here, that God appears, and Abraham is going to interact with God. And to be honest, I don't know how that works. <laughs> I don't know how in the story it works. We'll discuss that a little bit when we see the scriptural account. Um, but essentially, he's speaking to these guys uh, as representatives of uh, God. And so they kind of talk for just a minute. How are things doing? Want something to eat? Sure, we'll have something to eat, and they have something to eat. And uh, then they say, hey, um, we're going to head down into the valley. Uh, there's a city down there, a city some of you may have heard of before. Um, a city of Sodom, and a sister city, a city next to it, Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, they're like, listen, um, we've heard some really bad things about this city. And so we're going to go down there, and we're going to take care of that, and that city's going to be no more. And so they're like, cool, cool. So they start to take off, and uh, everyone's just like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, they're going to destroy the city? Now, this concerned him because he had a relative living in the city named Lot. And so, so, a- so he, Abraham, he decides he's going to bargain with God for a minute. And so he's basically like, God, I know this is an extremely wicked city uh, that you're getting ready to destroy here. Um, but, like, you know, what, what if there was, like, 50 good people, righteous people in the city? Like, w- would you not destroy the city? And so God's like, sure, sure, I can do that. And he's like, okay, what about if there's 45, right? Okay, God's like, okay, 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 God, okay, God. Now that we're at 45, uh, God, what about 40? And he just spends the next several uh, verses uh, just bartering with God, and he barters them all the way down to 10 people. God, if there are 10 good people in this entire city, will you spare the city? So God says, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. So, we're gonna, so we get down to uh, the city area. These guys are uh, coming into the city, and it's a pretty wicked city, uh, as they know, because they're there to uh, pretty much destroy it, right? And so uh, who do they happen to run into in uh, the city, uh, city center there as they uh, come in? It's Lot, coincidentally, or maybe not coincidentally. It is a story after all. So Lot shows up, 
He's like, hey, hey, you guys aren't from around here. They're like, no, we're new in town. <laughs> and they're like, uh, we're just going to hang out here in the square. Lot knowing how nasty the city is, like, mm, I don't think that's a good idea for you. They're like, no, 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 we're just going to spend the night. We're just going to sleep here in the middle of the city. And he's like, no, that is really not a good idea. I cannot let you do that. So he finally convinces uh, these two guys uh, he finally convinces them to come and uh, spend the night at his house, right? So he's like, all right, uh, come on, spend the night, spend the night at my house. All right, here we go. We're going to do it, uh, we're going to do it this way, maybe this way. I like that way better. We're going to spend the night at my house. So they go inside his house, right? Doesn't take long uh, because cities weren't that big uh, back then that everybody knew there were strangers in town. And so they show up at the door of his house, all these people, right? And they start pounding on the door. They're like, hey, Lot. We know, we know you've got visitors in there. We want you to send them out. And, and what they want to do with them when they send them out is, is not pleasant at all. And uh, it's not something that you think we should talk about on uh, Sunday morning in church. And uh, they're like, uh, bring, bring those guys out. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna show those guys a thing or two. And uh, I don't want to say it, so we're just going to wait for the scriptural account. I'll let that say it. That way, if you get mad, you can't be mad at me. <laughs> it's, in the, it's in the Bible. Don't tell me. So Lot's like, no, 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 no. And he starts bartering with them. He's like, here's who I'll send out instead. Here's what I'll do instead. And, and then he starts bartering. And finally, they're not having any of it. They're like, no, we want those visitors out here now. Finally, something happens. These guys all go blind for a minute. And the two angels tell Lot, if you, if you, if you got somebody here in the city that you like, you better get them out because this city's going down. And so Lot gathers up some of his family and he leaves. And as he's heading out of the city, here's what, here's what he can see on the horizon. City on fire, reduced to nothing. Now, this story takes place uh, about 2000 BC, which means this was before Moses this was before the law, the Old Testament law. This was before the Ten Commandments. This was before the Jewish people were a nation. Like this is before all of that. And Sodom was a string of about five different cities that were all real close to each other, um, right on the edge of the Dead Sea. And it was an extremely fertile area. Uh, it was easy to grow things there. And this city in particular was an extremely wealthy uh, extravagant city, right? It, it, was more like, it was more like a club where everybody had so much, they had so much money and they have so many slaves that they controlled that basically they, they controlled all of culture, right? Now we aren't sure historically why they were so wealthy. Um, it could have been the salt trade around there. The minerals in that area had medicinal value to them. Uh, could have been that. We're just not sure. But, but this was before there was any of the law that people followed. And so basically men and women would live according uh, to their conscience. That is everybody just did what they thought was the right thing uh, to do. And so Sodom went the way of the group, the way you would probably guess after a while, a group of rich people who had no boundaries would end up going. That's the way that the city went, right? So here's what they did. They decided that they wanted to totally control their culture and they wanted to be a city of beautiful people. 
No ugly people allowed in the city, right? We don't want any ugly people there. They decide they want to be a city of wealthy people. So we don't want any poor people coming inside our walls. So what they did was they actually passed laws that gave people of Sodom permission to do anything they wanted to people who visited the city in an effort to keep out the poor, the needy, and the ugly. They could do whatever. If somebody showed up begging or needing anything at the city gates, it was open season on them. You could murder them within your right. You could enslave them within your right. You could rape them within your right. Anything you wanted to do by law, if they came in the city, you could do it. Here's, here's a record of one of their laws. Check this out. One of their laws was, anyone who strengthens the hand of the poor or the needy with a loaf of bread shall be burnt with fire. Actual law of the city. This is the type of people. You give a hungry person bread, fire. Fire, right? Right? Charity. Think about that. Charity was made illegal. It was a crime. Ezekiel, who was a prophet in the Old Testament, uh, he was describing the people of Sodom and he described them like this. He said they were arrogant. He said they had an abundance of food, which is, means they had way more than they needed. Um, they, had, they had careless ease, meaning they didn't have to work very hard, <laughs> if at all. Uh, there was some sort of industry perhaps that allowed great income without much effort, um, but they did not help the poor and they did not help the needy. It was an or immoral city that had absolutely no boundaries on behavior, right? There's a story um, of a woman who was caught sneaking food uh, to poor people. And when they caught her, they covered her in honey and tied her to a wall on the outside of the city uh, to let the wild animals come up and eventually eat her. Like this is this, is, this is this. This is what we were dealing with. That's how conscienceless this city was. It was as bad as a city as you could possibly imagine. Now, the reason that this city shows up in scripture, right, is because the nephew of, of, uh, of Abraham lived there. That's the whole reason it shows up. Lot was the nephew of Abraham. Right before this story happened, Lot and Abraham, they were living together. Um, all of their, uh, all of their uh, cattle and flocks and all of that were all kind of combined right? And they decided that they needed to split up because they had so much cattle. Uh, they had so many animals uh, that they couldn't graze in the same areas. It was just too much. Uh, so they had to split up, go in different directions, get their, get their cattle separated. And um, when they split up, Lot decided to live in the valley that had Sodom in it, right? Abraham, he stayed up in the hill country. And um, Lot was accepted into Sodom because apparently Lot was good looking and he was wealthy. So he was accepted in the city, no problem. So he, here's the, the scriptural version of the story is in Genesis chapter 18. And, and there are some parts of this story that even though I'm gonna read some stuff, there's some that I'm not gonna read because that would, we'd have to run a hard, hard rating uh, at the beginning of the, <laughs> of the video to put it up. Um, some of you would have to cover some ears uh, over there or be ready to have an interesting conversation on the way home in the car. <laughs> so I'll skip those parts of it. <laughs> you can go back and read those later, decide if you wanna, if you wanna read those for a bedtime story. Um, <laughs> But if you think the Bible's boring, like it's because you're not reading very much of it because <laughs> there's some stuff. You need to go back and read this whole story when we're done 
uh, today. But in this story um, is an insight into the actions of God that we see repeated throughout Scripture, throughout the entirety of it. But this is the first time that this really surfaces. And there's a point of application for all of us in here. So here we go. Genesis 18, verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham. And again, like I said, I don't know how that worked. Um, Well, we're just going to go with it. He appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. So he invites these guys into the tent, fixes them a meal, eats with them. During the meal, one of them says, "By, by the way, Abraham, this time next year, Uh, you're going to have a son, right? And Abraham kind of looks up (laughs) because at this point he had no no children uh, in his life. Um, His wife, Sarah, overhears the conversation. She just starts laughing. (laughs) It's like, yeah, right. I'm way past those years uh, of having a child. Um, But then the men decide it's time to go. Abraham walks them out and they look down on the city of Sodom from up in the hills, Right? And this is, where, this is where we pick up the story. The Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if, they have, if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, the idea of the outcry of a singular group of people uh, is a theme throughout the whole Old and New Testament. Like you will see that over and over again. From time to time, a group of people would be so mistreated Right? or in so much pain, or under so much pressure, distress, that they collectively, as a group, cry out to God. And God says, I've heard it, and I'm ready to act. So the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And this is fascinating, because Abraham then begins to barter. And this little ex- in this little exchange, we discover something very interesting about God. Verse 23, then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? See, Abraham knew that they were getting ready to go to Sodom, and he knew his nephew Lot lived there, and he knew the reputation of Sodom was so bad that if those guys discovered what was going on there, everybody there was toast. Like, it was over, right? So he starts to bargain. Now, it's going to be wicked. I know, you're going to find wicked people. It's a wicked city, but, 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 there's some good people there. There's good people there. Are you going to wipe out the good people just to take out the wicked? Now, the word righteous, which is important to understand for our story, the word righteous um, is not like Christian righteous, right? There are no, there are no Christians yet. Righteous, righteous, there are no, it's not righteous like Jewish law righteous. That doesn't even exist yet. It's not like people are so good that they're keeping all the rules and everything. Uh, it simply meant somebody who acknowledged that God exists and feared God. And so they would try and live accordingly. That's what he's talking about, righteous. Um, so here it is. He keeps his bargaining, starts his bargaining. What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of 50 righteous people in it? And then this is really interesting. Because <laughs> here's look at what he says. He says, far be, I, far be it from you to do such a thing. Now he's trying to guilt trip God. Like, no, God, I know you're good. You're not going kill to the, kill the righteous and the, the innocent and the good people just to get rid of the bad ones. No, I know you wouldn't do that. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you, <laughs> right? 
And this is an interesting phrase uh, so early in history here. He says, uh, will not the judge of all of the earth do right? Abraham, knowing how wicked the city is, is essentially sitting there and trying to phrase his argument to call out God. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And this was a city of about eight to 12, 800 to 1200 people, probably somewhere in that realm. And Abraham asked God, are you really going to destroy all of them if there's 50 righteous? So the Lord says, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I'll spare the whole place for their sake. In other words, I'll not destroy the other, let's just call it 950 if there's a thousand. I'll not destroy the other 950, which is what they deserve, by the way, if there are 50 righteous in their midst. In other words, God's saying, okay, in the scheme of things, when things are looking bad, a little bit of righteousness goes a long way. A little bit of righteousness goes a long way for me. So then, verse 27, Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, <laughs> though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five people? And this is a masterclass in bargaining right here. Because look at what he did. He changed the number that they're arguing over from 1,000 or 1,250, all this, he changed the number they're bartering over to five. See how he did that? He changed, he changed the whole perspective of it, right? You're, you're, not, you're not going to destroy it over five people, are you? So, God responds, he said, if I find 45 there, I'll not destroy it. I'm thinking, all right. He's like one of them game shows. You know, a lot of people on the game show, when somebody's winning, they're going to be like, no, hold it. Take the money, take the money. What do they do every time? I'm going for more, right? I'm rolling the dice. That's what we're doing. Here's what, this is what Abraham's doing. It's like he's on a game show and he's going for broke. So once again, he spoke to him. Well, what if only 40 are found there? Right? He said, for the sake of 40, God says, I will not do it. Then he says, <laughs> he's on a roll now. He's feeling confident. Then he says, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Now, what, what are we learning in the process? Right? We are learning, A, that apparently you can negotiate with God. Right? And, and not only can you negotiate with God, but you can do it and not be like struck down by lightning. <laughs> right? It's okay to interact. Give the, you know, that's a good thing, right? Maybe you at home think that's a good thing. These people apparently don't. <laughs> um, but we're learning that there's something in the economy of God and the way that God views things that says, I am not rushing to judge sin. I'm not rushing to punish sin, right? And a little bit of righteousness will go a long way with me. There is a sense in which the righteous are preserving the unrighteous. This is a big idea here. We'll talk a little more about it. He, go, he goes on. Verse 31, Abraham says, Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if, what if only 20 can be found there? So God says, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. 
And he then said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10? We're down to 1%. He's essentially saying, what if when you get there, because Abraham knew exactly what they were going to find. He knew what the city was. God knew too, which is why this is what's strange about this part of the story. Why are they spending time bartering? They both know exactly what they are and are not going to find. This conversation between God and Abraham never needed to happen. It wasn't going to change anything. But there's a lesson here. He said, will you refuse to punish the sin for the sake of 1% of the people trying to do the right thing. In other words, here's another way to frame that question, which this kind of messes up with some of this. This is some of us when we have issues with God, this is kind of a hang up that we get caught on. You could frame that same question like this. Will you continue to allow bad things to happen to good people for the sake of the 1%? When you look at it from that angle, <laughs> it kind of changes it a little bit, doesn't it? Will you withhold your judgment if just the smallest percent are righteous? So here he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left and Abraham returned home. One of the, one of the men goes off to the city of Gomorrah, the other two go off towards Sodom. When they get there, Lot is sitting out by the gate uh, in the city, which means he was probably one of the leaders of the city uh, that watched who came and who went. And it was about to be evening, and when Lot sees these two strangers, he feels some sort of connection to them, goes up, strikes a conversation, tries to get them to come to, the house, to his house. They say, no, we're going to sleep in the square. He's like, no, you really don't want to do that. But they insist, we want to sleep in the square. And with all we know about the culture of the city of Sodom. We understand why Lot was trying to talk them out of it. He finally succeeds, gets them into the house. After they'd eaten, before they went to sleep, men of the city surround the house. And they had a demand. Here we go. 19 verse five. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. And this wasn't a, hey, we saw those guys. They looked pretty good. It wasn't that kind of, wasn't that kind of deal. It wasn't a, well, yeah, there some attractive guys. Well, I'll sleep with them. No, this was for the intent of humiliation. This was for the intent of teaching them a lesson and teaching anyone who would be watching from the outside a lesson. So Lot goes and he tries to talk them out of it. He's like, no, 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 you don't want to do that. But the culture of Sodom was so wicked that they wouldn't listen. Couldn't be talked out of it. So he begins to offer them things that you could not even imagine to get them to go away. Finally, they decide they're going to break the door down. The crowd outside does. And drag these men out of Lot's home and have their way with them right out there in the street. And legally, remember, they were allowed to do this. They were within their right. But God performs a miracle and all of the men that were there for a brief moment were struck with blindness. Here's what happens. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons or daughters or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place 
the outcry, there's, there's that word again. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. Now, Lot tells all the people around him, close him, we got to get. Lot's sons are like, that's ridiculous. We're not going anywhere. Why would we leave? I mean, come on, dad. We've got everything we want. We can do whatever we want. Why would we leave this place? Why would we do it? He convinces his wife that they need to go. And the two of them, along with their two daughters, they flee the city. Archaeologists have since excavated the area uh, where this city once was. And uh, here's what they found. It's absolutely fascinating. They found a, a thin layer. <laughs> they found a thin layer of natural asphalt covering the ruins of the city. Right? Some sort of petroleum product that was over the entire ruins of the thing. And the theory is, is that these cities sat along a major fault line, right, that runs all the way down to Africa, and there was an earthquake that opened up pockets of natural gas up under these cities that eventually caught fire. And it shot up, and it was ignited by the fires of the city, because that's how they saw at night. <laughs> it was ignited by the fires of the city, and it literally looked as if fire was raining down on the cities. That's what it looked like as this city was being destroyed. And apparently all five cities that were next to each other in this region were destroyed in this manner. Now, from a biblical perspective, as people are writing stories and not really understanding all of how the earth works and what's going on, from that perspective, it was God had had enough. He'd had enough and he finally passed his judgment and he gave these cities exactly what it was that they deserved. The same thing that probably many of us would have done to them had we seen the level of wickedness that they performed against other people. But here's the question. The question is, I've told you this really terrible story. What's the implication? Right, what is this to you? <laughs> right, Andy, usually, usually you set your ideas up first, let us know where you're going, then bring the Bible as you go. But all you've done today is just told us a really horrible story. Yeah, that, that's true. But the implication is this is that from God's perspective, a little bit of righteousness goes a long way. But beyond that, the, 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 the presence of righteousness will preserve the unrighteous. That is, God is willing to put off giving people what they actually deserve if there is within the circle of those people even a little bit of righteousness. It moves God to stall on judgment. And here's why. Because as long as there is some righteousness, that means there is hope. As long as there is some righteousness, there's a chance. And because there is a hope, because there is a chance that that righteousness could spread to others and people could turn towards God, he does not rush to judgment. And the reason that we get so frustrated with God sometimes is because we want God to rush to judgment, don't we? As long as it's not on us, I mean, be patient on us. But when it's other people and other things, we want that rush to judgment. And we look at evil things and bad things that are going on, and we're like, God, how could you let that happen? Why aren't you judging that? Right? Why, God, do you allow bad things to happen to good people? I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a question as old as time itself. 
Whatever God people have ever believed in throughout all of history, the question is, why let bad things happen to good people? Why don't you just take them out? At some point, we have all looked at injustice, either close to us or in the world, and thought, God, why don't you do something about that injustice? Haven't we? And this story kind of helps address that question. It's not that he doesn't want to, but he says there are still the righteous. As long as there's righteousness, there is hope for those who are unrighteous. 2,000 years later, after this, 2,000 years later, Peter is uh, writing a letter to a group of Christians. And it was a group of people who had begun to think that God would never judge sin because they just saw things going on all around them and that nothing would ever change. And the whole, you know, they started to wonder, is this whole God thing just kind of made up to keep us under control? Like, is it a way to just leverage power against us to control us? Here's what, here's what Peter said to him. He said, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. And we could add on to the end of that because of the presence of the righteous. Do you know what that means? And th th this is sort of mind-blowing. And th this is the thing you're going to need to wrap your mind around as, as you head out and begin your week. This means that from God's perspective, you ready? Here's, here's where I hope to encourage you, fire you up a little bit, be like, oh, oh, okay, I actually am something here. It means from God's perspective that your presence in that office, at that job site, with that team, in the classroom, in the business, with your family, in your community, your presence means something. It means something. Because you are righteousness. And as you are in those environments, as dark as those environments may seem, you are hope for them in those environments. And you may not get it right every time, and you may be like, whoa, 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 whoa. If there's one word I would not use to describe myself, it's righteous. Well, yeah, I wouldn't describe you that way either. <laughs> But that's how God sees you. You're a follower of Christ and you're trying to get it right. Hopefully you're trying to be better than you currently are. And God sees you and says, your presence matters in the areas that you inhabit. Right? The fact that you are there gives hope. And listen, the world is desperate for hope right now. Everywhere you look, it is easy to see things falling apart and flying off the rails and getting worse and worse and worse and worse. The world is desperate for hope. And God would say, you may get frustrated because I'm not acting or bringing judgment, but listen, as long as righteousness is there, as long as you are there and there is hope for those around you, I will wait because the presence of righteousness means the presence of hope. And listen, this is the essence of our role here on earth. It, it, you, you wonder, do I have a role in the bigger story, the arc of what God is doing throughout history? Yeah, you have a role. That is to be the hope of others, to point others towards 
God. For them to be able to look at you and whatever is going on everywhere else, it'd be like, wow, there's hope because I see the way they are. That is our role. And if you think about it, most of us didn't become Christians just simply because the majority of people in the country were Christians. Most of us became Christians because of one person or one group of people, right? This person or this group who stood out and made an impression on you. And the world around you is waiting for you to be that one to other people. They are desperately waiting for it. You represent hope to a lost and dying world. And God says, I will hold off on destroying all of this because you are hope that they may have a chance. And most of us, most of us would like to disqualify ourselves, right? You know, most of us would like to, you know, uh, Andy, if you only knew, if you only knew how I've acted in the past, and by past, maybe I mean just, just this weekend. If you, <laughs> if you only know how little I know about this Bible stuff, literally the only thing I get from the Bible is what I hear you read on Sunday morning. And to be honest, I've forgotten it by lunch. Andy, if you only knew, <laughs> right? If you only knew how I've already blown it. And when you would say that to me, here's what I'd say in response, me too. Me too, I could come up with a million reasons why I'm not light for anybody, but God would say, no, 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 no. Your presence makes a difference because you represent hope. And many people had the same response, thinking they can make no difference, but that is only because we don't see the same thing that God sees. A little bit of righteousness, that's us, and we may be just a little bit. goes a long way. A little bit of righteousness means hope. And what if we woke up tomorrow and as we started into our week, we accepted that as our role? We actually viewed ourselves as hope, as the representation of hope to those around us. If we really viewed ourselves that way, I have a feeling we would handle ourselves differently in quite a lot of situations. So yeah, this was a really bad story. But I hope I've given you hope to be hope for those who need hope. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, first of all, Lord, I, I thank you that our righteousness is not dependent on our getting everything right. Now, Lord, when you die for our sins, you set us in right standing with God that through your sacrifice, we have been made holy. Lord, let us begin to understand that our failures and our stumbles through growth and our journey, that, that those are not disqualifying events for us representing hope to those around us. And Lord, I pray that we, that this, this, sit on us for a little while and that we take serious the role that we have in your story that those who desperately need you who find themselves in hopeless situations can through us find that hope lord thank you first of all that you've accepted us and you continue to accept us but lord thank you for the 
privilege that it is for you to use us to bring others to you. May we take that seriously. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and for your grace. In your name, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Look forward to next week as we gather again. Uh, No small group tonight as trick-or-treaters are going to be invading uh, the house uh, at that time. So we will pick that up again next week. Uh, I hope you all have a great week. See you later.